Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right. Well, we left off last week with um, pretty much talking about the three main characters of Samuel. And we said Samuel was one big book. There's no such thing as First and Second Samuel in the Hebrew Bible. It's one big book. And we, we looked at Samuel. Um, we looked at Saul. And we started to look at King David. And we, we didn't really quite get into a lot of his life. And we really kind of ended up where um, Saul died. And then we're going to kind of move into Second Samuel where David is anointed. Um, if you remember the first time David was anointed, it was almost kind of like a um, like a secret, not a secret anointing, but was he king when he was anointed? No, Saul was king. But then there becomes a time where actually David is anointed. Um, and so let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 5. And um, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. And this is really... Um, the, the pinnacle moment here after, um, after Saul dies in battle, David mourns, and then it comes time for David to be recognized as the king of Israel. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, It was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years years okay there were four factors really in david's life that helped the elders of israel really decide that he was the man um, the first one was david's impressive military success while in the service of saul they realized that it was really david who was the, the general um, and all the time that Saul was king, David was really the one that led the battle. And so he got the credibility from the leaders by being the military commander. Because you remember, Saul wasn't that great of a military commander. He was kind of a bumbling idiot, if we be real honest with when you read about Saul. David was strategic. David was a good general. They recognized that. Secondly, they understood the prophetic revelation regarding David's destiny as Israel's leader. If you go back to 1 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel 3, let's just go, let's go back to 1 Samuel 16 real quick. Um, as the cross-reference there. Um, this is really the, the first time, well, maybe actually really the second time David, David was anointed king three times. Um, verse six, or, yeah, chapter 16, verse 1 through 3. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse. Um, wait a minute. This is actually the first, I'm sorry, this is the first time that David, I'm sorry, 
getting confused here. I don't want to confuse you because I'm confused. I don't want to be confusing. This is the first time that David was anointed um, king um, in, in chapter 16 when there's the, the, the processional of the sons of Jesse are brought before Samuel, and he looks at him and says, God does not look at outward appearance, but looks at the heart, and that's when David was chosen. So that was really the first time. Saul was still king, but that was the first time that, that, that David was recognized as, as the ultimate king. Um, Abner's endorsement of him. Now, Abner was a pretty powerful leader in Saul's regime. And after Saul's death, Abner basically vouched for David and says, I'm going to endorse him. And then um, his respectful treatment of the slain leaders of Saul's dynasty. Um, it's interesting, if you go back and, and you look at chapter... Um, well, there, there's, there's, there, there's a... When, when David's... When Saul's family dies and gets killed in battle, um, basically David shows great respect to Saul's family, which David didn't have to do that, did he? I mean, the way Saul treated him, David could have just basically said, okay, the guy's out of the way, I'm going to do my own thing. But he had respect. He was a godly man. He had respect for the leadership position of of Saul and, and was respectful even in the death of Saul and his family. But notice back in chapter 5, I'm sorry, back in Second Samuel chapter 5, notice what they say there in, in, in verse 2. The Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince. Okay? You will be my shepherd. Whose people is it? It's still God's people. No earthly king could own them. They're still God's possession. And what was the role of a shepherd? It was to defend, lead, and tend to the needs of the people. And so remember how we talked about the shepherd motif of a king? What was Saul's first experience that we see Saul on the scene? He can't take care of the, the, the sheep, the donkeys, the sheep, or whatever, the, the, the livestock. He's a bad shepherd. Okay? It's a foreshadowing of saying if you can't shepherd livestock... How in the world can you shepherd a nation? And so the very first thing we hear about David is that not necessarily that he's going to be a king. That, and they say, you will be prince over us. But what's the first thing? You will be shepherd of my people Israel. So he's a shepherd king. Okay, the idea of a shepherd. Okay, does a shepherd beat the sheep? Does a shepherd drag the sheep kicking and screaming? What does a shepherd do? He leads, okay? Those of you that work with cattle, and I'm not a big cattle person. I know a lot of you are like, yeah, I work with cattle. So, so if I'm wrong here, tell me, how do you drive cattle? Do you get out in front of them and say, follow me, cattle? What do you do? You get behind them and what? Prod them, okay? You're, but with the, is that the way a shepherd, does a shepherd stand behind and like get the cattle going? With cattle, you do that. But with people, what's the most effective way to shepherd? To be out in front as the leader, for them to follow you, to be an example. When they fall down, pick them up, or to be behind them just like riding them. Which is better? With people. The cattle, it's okay. With people, what's better? Out front, a leader, okay, a shepherd. Okay, now here's the thing. Let me just draw a picture. And for those of you listening on the Internet, you're just going to have to visualize this. Uh, here's a picture. Um, here's, here's a pasture, okay? Here's the pasture. Okay, the sheep are on one end of the pasture. These are the sheep. Um, sheep. 
<laughs> I could draw a sheet, but it would take too long. Here's the destination, okay? Now, let's say that the, here's the shepherd. Let's say that the leader knows the destination of where he wants to go. Let's say, for example, this is a church or this is a family, and you're the dad or you're the pastor or you're an elder or a leader, a spiritual leader. There's one way that you can get to your destination, right? You can get way out in front of the sheep and get there all cost with a bunch of strewn bodies behind you, not caring how, how the sheep come as long as you get there. Or you can say, okay, we're going to all move together. Some are going to straggle. Some are going to fall down. Some are going to fall, you know, some are going to be stupid. Um, you just basically, you work with the sheep and then you slowly, everyone gets to the destination. And so you still get to the destination, but how has the shepherd gotten them there? He's made sure everybody's getting there safely. Okay. What happens if a leader doesn't do that and just kind of drags the sheep kicking and screaming to the destination? Is that good leadership? Have you experienced leadership like that maybe where it's just like, we're going to get there. And, and so in, as a pastor, the pastor um, metaphor of a shepherd, um, a father he basically is the shepherd of his family, um, the shepherd of a nation, Israel. The, the imagery of a shepherd is the idea of leading, tending, feeding, beating off the wolves. Now, here's the hard thing as a pastor, and we've talked about this. I'm going to go on a diversion. Is that okay? Okay, you're like... Okay, as elders, sometimes we've talked about, um, you know, what's the difference between a wolf and a herding sheep? You understand what I mean by that? A wolf comes in and wants to destroy the flock. A herding sheep is a Christian that may just be going through a bad time and they're lashing out at people, but they need to be ministered to. So what do you do with the, if you're a shepherd, what do you do with the wolf? You shoot it, okay, or, you, or you, you get it. With a sheep, a herding sheep, what do you do? You try to, to take care of it. And so sometimes as pastors and leaders, we've got to really look at the flock and say, okay, there may be some wolves out there that are trying to come in and destroy the flock. We need to be on guard to keep them out. There may just be some sheep that are herding that really need ministering to, and they're lashing out because they're hurt. You know what happens to a sheep when it falls over? I'm falling and I can't get up. Okay, you know that commercial um, life alert. Is that the commercial life alert? Well, the sheep falls over and it really can't get up. It literally can't physically get itself back up. And it will die if it stays like that. So what a shepherd has to do is he has to come turn the sheep over. Now, if he turns the sheep over too fast, he can hurt the sheep. So what does he have to do? He's got to whisper in his ear. He's got to smooth it over. and He's got to gently turn the sheep over. That's how you deal with the herding sheep. And so um, in any type of ministry situation, whether you're dealing with friends that are herding or or just in your own life of of Christian friends and people that you're ministering to, uh, sometimes you may have some herding people around you and and you may need to shepherd them, lead them, tend to them. Um, It's just an interesting metaphor. Of all the metaphors you could have chosen, a shepherd. Interesting. What did Jesus say in John chapter 10? I am the good shepherd. Shepherd. Let's just turn there, okay? Let's turn to John 10. This is not on your notes, but it's just kind of a, it's a good segue. This may come up again in our notes, but that's okay. There's, there's a good thing in redundancy. John, keep your finger there in Samuel, in 2 Samuel, but turn to John chapter 10. Remember the seven I am statements of Jesus. This is one of them. Um, 
Look at John chapter 10, verse 14. This is a really powerful passage of Scripture. We'll, we'll look at some other parts of this passage of Scripture too. John ten fourteen. This is Jesus speaking. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father's. There was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Like I said Sunday, um, every time Jesus shows up on the scene, there's division. People don't quite understand what's going on. But notice what he says. I am the good shepherd. I know who are my own. God has given a people to the shepherd, Jesus. He knows those people. Those people listen to him. They are the sheep. But notice verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this flock. Who are the other sheep he's talking about here? Who's he talking to initially? Who's his audience? He's talking to Jews. Okay? But he says, I have other sheep that, are, that, that need to come together so that we can have one flock. Who are the other sheep? Gentiles. Gentiles. And what's Jesus going to do to the Jews and Gentiles? He's going to make them what? One flock. Okay? And as the shepherd, what's he going to do for the sheep? He's going to lay down his life, which means he's going to go to the cross. Let me ask you a question. Was Jesus a victim in the whole cross situation? He was never a victim. What does he say there? I lay down my life and I take it up on my own authority. I was given this authority by my father. So Jesus wasn't like he was a... A lot of people have this image of Jesus that he was just a victim of the Roman soldiers. He was a victim of Herod. He was a victim of Pilate. Just poor Jesus. He's just a victim of all these bad circumstances. No, he's sovereign all the way through it. He's in control of all the situations that happens to him. He voluntarily chose to go to the cross for the sheep to lay down his life for the sheep. Now, the question is... Where are these sheep? Does anybody know where the sheep are? These other sheep? All over where? Okay. They're all over the nations, right? So Jesus has these sheep. That's why we go to India, right? Why do we go to India to the Bogota in the villages? Because we believe that there are other sheep that need to be brought into the fold. And so when we go, we know that Jesus says there's other sheep. They will hear his voice. They will get saved. There will be one flock. And then so you go to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. What does he say? There's a multitude from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people gathered around the throne, praising the lamb who was slain. Now here's the paradox. Jesus is the shepherd and he's the lamb. How can that happen? How can you be the shepherd and the lamb? How can you be a lion and a lamb? Welcome to the world of the Bible. Those paradoxes are there to show us just how awesome Jesus is. So this whole picture of a shepherd, ultimately we're talking about Jesus, but in the context of 2 Samuel, it's a, it's a way of God saying, this is the prototype of a king. 
The king will be a shepherd. He will lead. He will take care. He will fend off. He will teach. He will, he will do everything to protect his flock. Okay, that's the motif there. Now, the Lord is going to bless David. Um, this is really, if you look at chapter 5 through chapter 10, this is really the apex of David's career. This is, if we were to take a snapshot of David's life, this is the period of his life where everything goes well for him. Okay, what's the first part of his life? He's running from Saul, hiding out in caves, and threatened, his life's being threatened. What's the end of his life? Well, he's dealing with a mixed-up family that's trying to take him over, and he's hiding again. Right here in these, these five chapters, chapter 5 through 10, we see David's career at its peak. What does he do in chapter 5, verses 6 through 8? Look at us read that. We're right there, back to chapter 5, verse 6 to 8. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. So right there you have the capturing of what? Jerusalem. So David conquers Jerusalem, which to this day is the, one of the key cities in all the world that everybody's fighting over, David took it. Okay, what's the importance of Ju- Jerusalem as the capital? Okay, who were the inhabitants of Jerusalem? They were called the Jebusites. Remember back in Joshua when we talked about how Joshua didn't get all the people out of the land? What was the one clan that, he, that they had a hard time getting out? The Jebusites. So the Jebusites have always really kind of been there. And so the law commanded them to dispose of the Jebusites and eradicate them from the land. If you go back to Exodus chapter 23 and you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, all those ites that God talks about, the Jebusites were supposed to be wiped out. They weren't. They're still there. What's David doing? When he conquers the Jebusites, he's finally doing what Joshua couldn't do. He's demonstrating his continuity with Moses and establishing himself as the king devoted to the Lord's commands. Now, remember, what did Deuteronomy 7? We looked at that last week. The prototype, what is a king supposed to do? He's supposed to have his own copy of the law next to his throne, and he's to read the Bible basically every day as the way to guide his his kingship. How is David starting out his kingship? What's the first thing he does after he's anointed? He goes and deals with the problem that wasn't taken care of during Joshua's time and says, if I'm going to be the king, I'm going to uphold the law of Moses here. And of course, remember, this is the Old Testament, so it's still under the law of Moses. I'm going to uphold the law of Moses, and I'm going to do what should have been done all those years ago. And so he's showing from the very beginning, I'm going to be a king who obeys God's word, obeys God's law. And then he sets up his kingdom. 9 through 16, he basically sets up his kingdom there in Jerusalem. Okay? But that's not fully the story because the Ark of the Covenant is still not in Jerusalem yet. Now, what's the importance of the Ark of the Covenant? What what is the Ark of the Covenant? We talked about this a few weeks, weeks ago. It's the portable box that contained the Law of Moses it had the manna in the jar. It had Aaron's budding staff. Um, it had the, the cherubim on the top. It basically represented the very presence of God. It was to reside in the Holy of Holies. It had not come to Jerusalem yet. And so here's the issue. Let's look at the transport here. 
Let's just look at chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons, I assume that's how you pronounce his name, the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahiho went before the ark. Now, why is, why is he so much talking about a new cart? If you go back to Samuel, do you remember how they transported the ark? What, what was the way they were supposed to do it? The priests and Levi were supposed to carry it on poles, okay? How did they transport it before? On an ox cart. And it kind of was not the right way, and that was when they got the, uh, the hemorrhoids and all that kind of stuff, and just all that weird stuff. And the guy was struck dead, too. Um, well, no, that, that was right here where Uzzah struck dead. What happened then was they basically um, didn't transport it properly and, and God brought judgment upon them. Okay, now they're transporting it properly, the right way. They're carrying the ark of God. But let's look at chapter, uh, verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the ox and stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. That place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now here's the situation. Uzzah, what's he do? The ark's about to fall. What does he think he needs to do? What what would be your natural reaction? I've got to catch this thing. Okay. He catches the thing, and what happens? He He gets struck dead. And we look at that, and we think, what in the world is going on here? Well, was it? and David's angry at this. David's mad. Here's the question. Why is David mad? Was it because the Lord killed Uzzah or because Uzzah acted foolishly? Why did Uzzah act foolishly now here's what i was talking about earlier the first transport the ox cart was not the covenant it was doomed for failure the second transport's correct with the levites carrying it by hand they had the ritual offerings this time um we'll get to that in just a moment here as far as how david prepared himself to, to have the ark come to the house of the lord there or come to the tabernacle in jerusalem but let's think about uzzah for a moment why did god strike him dead for trying to do something right Well, he was a Levite. What's more profane? What's more dirty? The ground or a human? So if it touched the ground, it's not a big deal because it's God's creation. But if it touched the hand of a human, it's a big deal because God says this is to be holy. And so we look at this and we say, my goodness, God. I mean, there's there's a couple situations in the Bible where God just... um, kill someone on the spot. You remember the, the two sons of Aaron that authorized un, unauthorized fire and then the Lord consumed them with fire? Here you have Uzzah that dies. It's, it's called the holiness of God, the burning holiness of God. 
um, we may look at that and look and say, well, that's an Old Testament experience, you know. Um, nobody, God's not going to strike anybody dead today. Can we say that? Could God strike somebody dead if he wanted to? Does God often do that? There's a New Testament example, okay? Let's just turn to the New Testament for a moment. Turn to 1 Corinthians. And what did we just celebrate this past Sunday? Lord's Supper, right? Well, let's look and see what happens when the church in Corinth was messing around with the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's giving instructions. Um, There's factions, there's division, there's problems in the church in Corinth. I mean, every problem you can think of in Corinth, there's lawsuits among the believers, there's incestuous relationships, they're, they're worshiping, um, they're, they like have their own camps of who they're following. I follow Peter, and I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos. There's just major problems in the, in the church in Corinth. And what's going on is they would have these love feasts where they would come together, for lack of a better term, let's just call it a potluck. They'd come together for a potluck before they would have the Lord's Supper. And what they were doing was, let's, let's, verse 20, chapter 11, verse 20, let's just read here. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What are they doing at the Lord's Supper? Some are getting drunk. Some are the poor people that are coming that can't afford to bring food to the potluck. What's happening? They're not getting to anything to eat. They're being, they're being rude. They're not being generous. Can you imagine the Lord's Supper like that? People just getting drunk on the Lord. So they're, they're, they're abusing the Lord's Supper. Now go down to verse 28. Paul says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, there's a play on words there, discerning the body. What does that mean there? At first glance, what does, that, what, does that, what does it sound like with the Lord's Supper? The body of Christ. But notice he doesn't say discerning the body and the cup. It could be a play on words there that you're not having respect for the body, the church family. That when you come together for the Lord's Supper... Not only are you not examining yourself to see if you're taking it in a worthy manner, but you're not discerning how to, how to act as the church family. You're getting drunk. You're, 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 there's factions. You're not being the body of Christ. And then look at verse 3. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So what is Paul saying? The reason some of you have died in the church of Corinth is because you've been abusing the Lord's Supper. Now, is that God's judgment? Paul basically says right there, I'm giving you a reason why some of you died. It wasn't natural causes. It's the judgment of God upon you for profaning the Lord's Supper. So the Old Testament, you have Uzzah struck dead. New Testament, you have people dying. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They were struck dead just like that. Now, I'm not saying God will always do that. Thankfully, He doesn't do that a lot of times. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. But the issue is the holiness of God. Is God absolutely holy? What's the one thing that the Bible says God is holy? 
He's what? Holy to the what? Third power. Okay, somebody's asked me about algebra earlier. Holy to the, is that the third power? Okay, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The only three times that, that, that any um, attribute is given to God is holiness. It doesn't say love, 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 mercy, 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 grace, 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 justice, 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 wrath, 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 righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. That's so hard to say three times fast. It says holy, holy, holy. Now, all of his other attributes are holy. His righteousness is holy. His love is holy. His mercy is holy. But this is the holy God who basically has rules for how the Ark of the Covenant is to be transported. And back under that time, this was the issue of God's holiness. Now, as we get to David preparing the capital city and himself, what does he do? He erects a tabernacle in Jerusalem to be prepared to house the Ark of the Covenant. He's also going to wear the ritual garments. He's going to wear an ephod. Now, this is weird. Is a king allowed to wear an ephod? Who, who wore the ephods? Only the priests. So David is doing something very, very unusual. He's wearing an ephod. This was the ritual garment reserved only for priests and Levites. At this point, we really don't know all the details, just that the shepherd king was acting as a priest. He's a king slash priest. Now, remember when Saul tried to do that, he got in trouble for it, didn't he? But since David is the rightfully anointed king, he's acting as priest. This is unusual. David's the only one that does this. And we need to kind of keep that in mind about when we think of king and priest. We're going to look at that here in just a moment. But David is acting as a king and a priest. Now, what's happening? He's out there what? The Ark of the Covenant comes back to Jerusalem. And what does everybody do? They're excited. They're joyous. David's out there in his ephod dancing. And what does his wife do? Michael, or Michael, however you want to pronounce it. She's looking down from the window. And what is she doing? She's bitter. She's despising him. David could not have exposed his true nakedness because the prefect ephod would not have let him. She basically says, you're out there, you know, flapping around in your underwear for all the, pardon the, you know, that's basically what she says. You're out there, so all, you know, showing off so all the young girls can see what you're doing. That's not true because ephod is not underwear. Ephod is the priestly garment. She's bitter and she berated him because she saw him worshiping God and he was... Um, he didn't care what other people thought about him. Now, let's stop and talk about worship for a moment, okay? How many times in a worship service are you afraid to, like, maybe raise your hand because you're afraid somebody behind you is going to be like, oh, if they raise their, you know, I'm just using that as an example. I'm not saying we go all weird and, you know, bark like animals and jump around in the aisles and do awkward stuff, but maybe sometimes you want to, like, there's times, guys, in a worship service where the, 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 it's so powerful, I just want to kind of kneel where I'm at. And I'm afraid because I'm on the front row. If I kneel, everybody's going to think, well, maybe the pastor's showing off. And I'm like, no, I just want to kneel. There's times where I feel like I need to just sit and listen. And part of the worship service is cool sitting on the front row is I can stop and I can hear you guys all singing. And I like to just kind of sometimes stop. Sometimes I pray. And I like to pray out loud. So if you see me going like this in the front row, it's because I'm praying out loud. I don't want you to think I'm speaking in tongues or doing anything weird. I'm just, I'm just praying out loud and I'm just so you don't see my mouth move so you think i'm weird or anything but isn't that weird that like we're so concerned what other people are thinking about us when we're worshiping that who should really we be the one that we're concerned the most with god 
And so David had this very intimate relationship with God that he had the freedom to worship God. And yet there was always those naysayers on the side saying, you know, why are you so happy worshiping God? Why are you so joyful? And his wife was bitter. And what did God do? She was barren. Okay. Let's go to chapter 7 because this is probably the most important. Oh, the undignified reaction was truly an authentic act of appropriate praise. Uh, the, world, the word undignified is sapal in Proverbs 29, 23. This word is used to signify proper humility before the Lord. Okay, in chapter 7, this is probably the most important Christological section in the Old Testament. It's probably the most important part of the whole life of David. It's called the Davidic Covenant. Okay? The Davidic Covenant. And let's just look at it. Starting in verse, chapter 7, verse 1. Okay. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David built him what? Palace. But where's the ark of the covenant? still in the tabernacle, which is the portable tent. Now, it's, it's, it's moving from... Remember we said the tent used to move around in the wilderness, and then it went to Shechem, and then finally um, here it is in Jerusalem. And so it's, it's, it's got a permanent place, but it, David's like, this isn't fair because I get to live in this huge house, but the most important thing, God's presence, God, the Ark of the Covenant's not in a house. It's, it's just like in a little tent out here. This isn't... David's thinking in his mind, this isn't fair. I need to build God a house. I need to build God a house. Does that sound weird? David says, I need to build God a house. Does God need anything? Does he need a house? Does, does, does David need to build it for him? But Nathan says, do what's in your heart. The Lord is with you. Okay, verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Now, remember, Nathan's a prophet. So God speaks to Nathan, and Nathan is the spokesman that often comes to David and confronts him with a lot of stuff. So this is what God said to Nathan, verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? So what's God saying? I didn't ask for a house. I don't need a house. Not once did I go to the judges and say, how come you guys haven't built for me a house? Let's keep going. Verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more formally. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne 
this kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Okay. What does God say to David? I was the one that raised you up. I was the one that chose you. I was the one that did all this for you. David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. There's a play on words there. Now, does that literally mean that David's going to have a literal house? How do we, how do we use that term house? Can it mean a literal structure like a temple, or what can it mean metaphorically? A, a family. Or, in other words, as a king, it would be what? A dynasty. So God says, David, I'm glad that you're going to build for me a house. And yes, your son is going to build for me a house. But ultimately, I'm the one in charge and I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build a dynasty. And it's going to be an eternal dynasty. And ultimately, from this dynasty is going to come the ultimate king, Jesus. Now, let's see Jesus in the Davidic covenant. There are seven declarations by Nathan. Jesus is the son of David, right? You will have a son. Look there in verse um, 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Okay? When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. Now, at first glance, it's talking about Solomon, right? He's going to be disciplined for his iniquity. But was Jesus disciplined for iniquity? Yes, but not his own. By his stripes, we are healed. He was bruised for our iniquity. So yes, Jesus took the rod. He took the chastisement of God, but it wasn't for his own iniquity. It was for ours. Okay? It also says this. Um, let's see, where are we? But my steadfast love will not depart from him, because I took it from Saul. And your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Um, it talks about... Um, Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will raise up an offspring. It's the whole idea of the resurrection. Jesus is the one who's the builder of the house of God. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is the one that possesses a throne. He's at the right hand of the father right now. Jesus has the eternal kingdom. Jesus is the son of God and that Jesus is a product of an immaculate conception, God as his father. Because right here it says, I will be to him as a father, and he shall be to me a son. So when we talk about the Davidic covenant right there, even though it's talking about David immediately, you're gonna, David's gonna, your son Solomon's going to build a temple, but ultimately I'm going to build you a house, David. And it's going to be an eternal house with the eternal king on the eternal throne, the ultimate son of David, Jesus Christ, who will rise from the dead. Okay? But, is everything hunky-dory at this point? What happens when you get complacent as a leader and things are going well and all your people go off to war and you're at home bored because you don't have anything to do? You know what happens when boredom kicks in? I'll just put a little equation up here on the board. 
boredom equals sin, <laughs> okay? Think about your own life for a minute. The times that you've been bored, has that led to sin? Maybe you got restless, maybe you got bored, and, and um, as you were idle, as you were bored, it allowed your mind to wander, it allowed you to do st- and eventually you ended up going into some sin from boredom. That's kind of what David's doing here, but I think it's even on a deeper level. So let's look at chapter um, 11. David and Bathsheba. Okay. David and Bathsheba. Chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, why give that detail? Who, who, I mean, who cares that David stayed back home? Is he being the shepherd at this time? What was his claim to fame, his military might, being the general? You guys go do this one. I'll stay back at home. I've, I've paid my dues. I'm going to kick back. I'm going to be on top of my palace. It's a nice spring day. I'm going to go take a walk. I'm just going to kick back, relax. I'm going to have my lemonade, and I'm going to look down and see what I see, and let's see what he sees. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. Did David plan this the way it's written here? Was it premeditated, or was it more like, he just decided to get up and stretch and go walk out there. And then what? When he s- Remember what God said to Cain? Sin is crouching at your door. You must master it. So I think there's an opportunity here for David to not act upon lust, but he doesn't. Okay, here's the issue. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. What could have David done at that point? Like Job, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. He could have covered his eyes, ran, said, this is wrong. Like Joseph, I, could have, I can get out of there. Okay, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, if you have lust in your heart after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart with her. Okay, at this point, has David committed adultery? Trick question. Yes. In his heart. Has he physically committed adultery with her yet? No, but lust is there, and it's the seed of further action. So you've got a root sin and a fruit sin. I've talked about this before, haven't I? Root and fruit. I know in my other classes I've talked about root and fruit. Let's talk about root and fruit. It sounds like a good cereal, doesn't it? Root and fruit. Have you had your root and fruit this morning? Um, You've got root sins, and you've got fruit sins, okay? These aren't in your notes, by the way. The fruit sins are the easier sins that we can see. These are the outward sins like um, adultery, theft, murder, you know, lying. But behind all of those, there's a, a root sin, which could be lust. It could be pride. It could be envy. It could be selfishness. Okay, both of these are sins. We just pay more attention to these because we can see them. And when you deal with sin management, what do we often deal with? We try to go towards the fruit, right? Is that going to work? 
You can put a Band-Aid on the fruit, but if you don't go cut the axe at the root, you haven't dealt with the sin issue. Just like pulling weeds out of a garden. And behind all of these is idolatry. So for David, it wasn't as though he committed adultery yet, but what was the root sin in his life? It could have been lust. It could have been pride. I'm the top dog in the whole land. I can have any woman I want. Nobody can see me. Nobody's going to know. I can do whatever I want. I'm entitled to this beautiful woman. Or it could have just been lust. She's a beautiful woman and I need to have her. Or it could be envy. Why does this nobody Uriah get a beautiful wife and I don't and I'm the king? Even though, yeah. So, so there's this root sin that usually comes to fruit sin. Oftentimes when we talk about sin, when, when, we, when we try to help people deal with sin issues, we don't oftentimes get to the root because aren't these harder to find? Because they go deep into your heart. But unless you deal with the root sins, you can just kind of put a Band-Aid on these things. Let's say you get adultery under control. Like you're never going to commit adultery. Like I would never commit adultery. But let's say you don't get lust under control. What's going to pop up over here? Maybe pornography. You may not physically act out with another person, but you may have pornography. Or I'm not going to murder. I would never murder. But if you have pride or selfishness, you may, it may come out in anger. And Jesus said if you have anger in your heart, it's as if you murdered somebody. So you got these root sins and these fruit sins. So what does he do? He sees Bathsheba. Now look at verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What's David's plan? Okay, sin number one, lust, selfishness, pride. Okay, whatever root sin David had. Sin number two, adultery. Okay, What's the consequence? She's pregnant. And so David's like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to bring Uriah back from battle, and he hasn't seen his wife for all this time. Let's have him go home and, you know, do what husbands and wives do, and then maybe, you know, he'll think it's her baby and then she gets pregnant. And what does Uriah say? There's no way I'm going to go do that when all my fellow soldiers are sleeping out in the fields. I'm a soldier like them. I'm not going to be treated better. Who's acting more godly here in this case? Uriah or David. So plan number one fails, and David's panicking. So what does he do now? He comes up with plan number two. If all else fails, let's just go the alcohol route. Okay? Here we go. And that's basically that's what happens. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, 
Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. As a drunk man, he had more restraint than David did as a sober man. Okay? David gets him drunk, thinks, okay, if he's drunk, and he'll go down there, and you know, maybe he'll go home to his wife, not knowing really what he's doing because he's drunk, and he doesn't do that. So plan number two fails. David's panicking. What's left? Okay, here's the master plan. We're going to get him killed, but we're going to make it look like he wasn't killed. Okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to order his murder, but we're going to make it look like I didn't order his execution. Does that make sense? So here's what David's going to do. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting... And then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know what they that they would shoot from the wall. Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerebesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on them from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Okay, what's the plan here? Stick Uriah out front. Make him feel like he's a mighty warrior. I'm out there in the front lines, you know, on, on the offensive line out there going. And then what happens? Everybody draws back so that he's left vulnerable and basically he dies, quote-unquote, on the battlefield. But did he really die on the battlefield the way a normal fighting situation would happen? No, it was orchestrated by David. At this point, let me just ask you a question. How many of the Ten Commandments has David broken? <laughs> let's, just, uh, let's just list them out here. Um, obviously, adultery. What else? Murder. Okay, what else? Lying, coveting. What else? Stealing. He stole somebody else's wife. I don't think he broke the Sabbath unless this happened. I don't think it would have. What else did he do? He dishonored his parents and her parents. But what's the first, what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. That's the ultimate commandment. So here you have a man that's really, if you're, if you're going to stack some up and say, here's a guy that's committed a lot of sin, then we're going to use the Ten Commandments as a standard. David's the poster child, and yet he's a king who's a man after God's own heart. Try to wrap your mind around that. I don't know if I can understand it, and so we'll leave that as a mystery. But let's see what happens. If you go down to verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What's David? I mean, it's almost like, okay, your morning's over. You, you know, you cried for your dead husband. Now come live with me as my wife. But notice that last verse. What does it say? The thing that David had done displeased the Lord goes back to what? The first commandment. 
It displayed, he did not give glory to the Lord. And you guys know the story, right? How David rebukes David. I mean, Nathan rebukes David in chapter 12. He tells him a parable. Okay, let's look at the parable. If you're Nathan and you know that your king has committed all these sins, are you just going to walk into the king's chambers and say, you're a flat-out sinful, lying, murderous, thief? You know, are you going to just go in, go in there? What would David have done? Probably killed him on the spot. So Nathan's a smart guy and says, okay, I gotta, I, I, with the wisdom of the Lord, I'm going to do this in a way that may be creative. Okay, so let's look at chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Okay, so God's in, in orchestrating this. He came to him and said to him, here's the parable, the little story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan sticks his bony fingers in the face of David and says, You are the man. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword... Remember the key phrase in both First and Second Samuel, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Okay, so here's the story, right? Two men, one rich, one poor. One guy has this one little ewe lamb. It's very, very precious to him. The other guy has tons. What does he do? He goes and takes from the guy that has this one little ewe lamb and what does this do? David hears the story and he's thinking, this is unjust, this is unfair, that guy's wrong, he deserves to die. And then what does Nathan say? He drops the bombshell and says, well, David, that's you. Now think about how David would have felt at that moment. It's like, oh my goodness. And then Nathan pronounces a judgment and says, the sword, the sword is never going to depart from your house. Meaning what? There's a consequence to your sin, David. You're not just going to get a free pass. Yes, you're a man after my own heart, but you've sinned majorly, the sword is not going to leave your house. That means your children are going to always be fighting. There's going to be issues. There's going to be warfare. There's going to be violence. That's the consequence of your sin, David. Now, here's something that's very, very interesting. And if you read this, you may think, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So let's keep reading. Because at first glance, it should bother you until it's fully explained in the New Testament. Okay, let's look at verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. That happens later on with his own son. For you did it secretly, but it will, I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, okay, here's David's confession. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. 
Then Nathan went to his house. Now, you go over to Psalm, and we'll get to the Psalms, and if, I think maybe, maybe get to them next week. Um, Psalm, um, well, Psalm 32, but also Psalm um, 51. Psalm 51, if you look at the, at the superscript under Psalm 51, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. So Psalm 51 is all of David's confession of his sin to the Lord after he had this episode with Bathsheba. So you can go read that on your own and see how David... The, the thing that made David a man after God's own heart was that when he was confronted with sin, what did he do? He confessed and he repented and he trusted in Christ alone. But here's the thing that should bother you. Verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said, the Lord has put away your sin. Okay, just like that. All all David had to do was say, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, okay, you're forgiven. Was there a sacrifice made to forgive sin right there? Did Nathan pull out a goat or a bull or a lamb and have any type of sacrifice? Was there the shedding of blood right there to cover David's sin? If you were Uriah's father and you walked in on this conversation and you heard Nathan say to David, your sins are forgiven, how would you as Uriah's father feel about that? You mean just like that? If you were Bathsheba's mother, how can God just quote-unquote forgive? Can God just forgive? trick question before you answer that think can god just forgive there has to be a sacrifice of atonement and there's no sacrifice of atonement here for david so we so we have to think okay now what's going on here even under the old testament system there was a sacrifice for sin and all nathan says is your sins are forgiven Okay, let's go to Romans for just a moment because Romans will answer this question for us. Romans 3, probably the most important passages in the whole New Testament. Romans 3, 21. Let's turn there. Romans chapter 3. You're probably very familiar with this passage. You've probably read it many, many times. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Probably some of the most important passages in the, in the New Testament. Okay, here we go. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was done to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 25, that last phrase. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, 
he passed over former sins. God could just automatically forgive David in the past, knowing that in the future that sin would be paid for by Jesus on the cross. So it wasn't like David got a freebie where there was no sacrifice. What God's saying is there were a lot of sins in the Old Testament that there weren't sacrifices for. God passed over those and they fully got paid for by Jesus when he died on that cross so that he could be the just and the justifier. What does it mean that God is both the just and the justifier? It's very important that we understand this truth. Must God punish sin? If God doesn't punish sin, is he just? So God as just means he punishes sin. Can God just tell a person they're not guilty when they are guilty? He does that in the gospel. God can tell. That's what happens to all of us. Are all of us guilty? And what has God pronounced upon us? Not guilty, even though we are guilty, right? So God can pronounce us not guilty. And God can also punish sin at the same time. How does this happen? What's the only way this can happen? Where God can punish sin and declare us not guilty when we're the ones that deserve to be punished for sin and we're the ones who are guilty. That's the, what's the only way he can do it? By Jesus. Jesus takes the punishment. Jesus takes the guilt so that God can be just by punishing the sin that, he de- that deserves to be punished, but at the same time, he can be the one to declare us not guilty because Christ was set forward as a propitiation. Now, you guys tell me, what does propitiation mean? Big word. I'm here whispering. It's a substitutionary atonement to satisfy the wrath of God. Absorb the wrath of God. Take the wrath of God. That's what propitiation means, to take God's wrath. Jesus on the cross was set forth as a propitiation. He was set forth publicly on the cross to take God's wrath, God's punishment, so that God could be just. So uh, at the cross, okay, there's two things that come together at the cross. You got God's wrath and you got God's love. And they come together in Jesus. I can't explain it. That a holy, wrathful God can also love us at the same time. It only comes through a mediator, Jesus, who takes the wrath and then pours out the love. Does that make sense? So Nathan can look at David and say, your sins are forgiven because in the future, the true son of David, Jesus, would pay for those sins. Okay? But the sword is not going to leave the house. In the next chapter, his sons, Amnon, rapes Tamar, his daughter. So there's an incestuous rape happen. Okay? That Absalom, the other brother, goes and takes out revenge and murders, murders Amnon, and then he flees to Geshur. Sound like a great family, right? Incest, murder, sibling rivalry. We see this a lot, don't we, in the Bible? We're like, that's in the Bible where brothers are killing brothers? Yes. People have an incest? Yes. Uh, if you go back there, I think it was like 200 or something. Because um, these were all like half-brothers and sisters. 
Yeah. Yeah, half, half. And then Absalom leads a treacherous revolt against David. Absalom tries to overthrow the throne, so David has to go into hiding. David goes into exile, and basically he has enough support to eventually quell Absalom's revolt. And then at the end, David returns to Jerusalem. So, okay, how was David's life before? He walked with the Lord. He may have been, he may have been chased by Saul, but he, he was doing the right thing. He had the golden years of David. He captured Jerusalem. He became the king. And in one moment of weakness, a spring afternoon, when he looked down on that bathing beauty, what could he have said? I'm not going to do it. One act caused that to happen. Are there consequences to sin? Major consequences to sin. For Christians. It doesn't mean that God stops loving you. It doesn't mean that you lose your salvation. It just means that there are consequences in God's economy where he disciplines his children and you, you will reap what you sow. You still go to heaven and you're still loved by God and you're still justified, but you may have some serious heartache along the way because of your sin. Now, those sins are forgiven. You can be redeemed. There's hope. There's always you know, opportunity for redemption, but there is consequences to sin, and we see that in David's, in David's life. Final issue, David's hymn of praise at the very end, and then David utters his last oracle at the very, at the very end of the book. Okay, That's the life of David. And we're going to have to really, we're never going to get done with this class. So let's, um, let's switch gears and talk about the Old Testament prophet. Because when you start getting into First and Second Kings, you start hearing about these prophets, Elijah, Elisha. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Zechariah, Lalaliah, any other like ayah words that you can think of, all these prophets. I don't know if Lalaya was a prophet, but it just rhymed. Forerunners. Moses was the first prophet. Samuel was another prophet. Elijah was a prophet. We're talking about the prophetic books like Amos and Jeremiah as we get to those a little bit later on. So here's some misconceptions about prophets, okay? They were not hysterical babblers who went into trances and spoke weirdly. It's not what we think about, like a guy standing on the street corner that's saying, the world's going to end. These were men who spoke the word of God, and they were not fortune tellers. They were not religious fanatics. Characteristics of the prophets. They possessed hearts. I'm going to go pretty quickly through this. They, they possessed hearts devoted to the Lord. They possessed a strong sense of calling. They were messengers of the word of the Lord. They were forth tellers. What's a forth teller? They, they, they told what's going to happen, but they mainly just told the word of God, not so much as a fortune teller, but they told what was going to happen, but they, 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 a lot of times their messages were messages of this is the word of the Lord. They were foretellers. That's future. They were creative in their ministry. Some of them did parables. Some did songs. When we get to, when we get to Amos and some of these other ones, I'm just kind of getting you prepared for these, um, these uh, later prophets, sarcasm. Because when you get into kings, um, we need to understand what happens with Solomon because um, after Solomon, the nation, we'll talk about in just a moment, the nation splits into two kingdoms and you have prophets in the north and prophets in the south. And so as you read First and Second Kings, 
there's different prophets ministering. And then when you look at like Isaiah through the end, through Malachi, you've got like northern prophets and southern prophets. And so we're starting to get into all the prophets. Um, the common themes, obligation to obey the covenant at Mount Sinai, the call to personal holiness and righteousness, a challenge for God's people to be at peace with each other, announcement of the day of the Lord, the coming Messiah, the anointed one. Okay, let's talk about priests. Prophets, priests, and kings. Okay? What did priests do in Exodus? Let's look back at Exodus 40, 11 through 16. Exodus 40. Basically, it's the anointing of Aaron. We won't read all of that, but basically the priesthood was you had a mediator, usually one person, a high priest or a group of people, the priesthood. And what was their job? What did the priest do? Two things the priest did. He offered prayers on behalf of the people to God, and he offered sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. As a go-between. Could your average Israelite go directly to God? Could they walk into the tabernacle and say, Here I am, God. Here's my heifer. (laughs) No, they couldn't. They had to go through a priest who was the official designated person God had chosen to be the mediator to offer the appropriate sacrifices and also to offer intercessory prayers to the people. Think about that for a moment. Hold that thought. Okay. What does a prophet do? A prophet does what? Preaches. His, he is a ministry of the Word. He declares the Word of God. Okay, so you got a priest, you got a prophet. What does a king do? The king rules, reigns. What did we talk about earlier? The ultimate type of king, shepherds. Okay, so... Jesus Christ, and this comes from a lot of what John Calvin was kind of on the first one to, to really articulate this, but since him, this has kind of been the threefold designation, the threefold office of Jesus. Jesus is the prophet, he's the priest, he's the king. He's the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Now you guys help me. How is Jesus the ultimate prophet? He not only declares the word of God, he is the word of God. He's the final message of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Not only did Jesus come preaching the Word, but He is the Word. How is Jesus the priest? He offered Himself as the ultimate sacrifice, as the one mediator between the people and God. How is Jesus the King? He rules and He reigns and He shepherds. Okay, let me give you a little exercise in your praying. Those of you that pray, hopefully all of you pray. When you pray... Do you praise Jesus and talk to him in those three ways? I'll give you a challenge. It may, it may make your praying a little bit more fun. Do you go to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I thank you ultimately for being my prophet. I thank you for being the word of God. I thank you for showing me the word. I thank you for being the word of God incarnate. I would not know God's word if I did not know you. You're my ultimate 
prophet, King Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for being my priest. If it wasn't for you, I would not have a sacrifice of sin. I praise you for dying on the cross for me. I praise you for substituting yourself for me. I praise you for being at the right hand of God, being the one mediator between God and man. Lord Jesus, I praise you for being my priest. And Lord Jesus, I praise you for being my king. You're ultimate. You're awesome. You're powerful. You're my shepherd. You rule and reign. You are my sovereign king. And so, holy Jesus, I praise you for being my prophet, priest, and king. Have you ever prayed like that before? Never thought about that before? Try it. It may intensify your praying because you can be very specific about who Jesus is. Because a lot of times, what do we pray? What do we always say? Dear Jesus, thank you for this day. Dear Lord, help me with this. Dear Lord, <laughs> bless so and so. Dear Lord, help me. You know, dear Lord, I need, I need, dear Lord, I need, help me, I want. And then how many dear Lords we say, and if we keep saying dear Lord more and more, we feel like we're praying. There's nothing wrong with saying dear Lord. There's not wrong with, but sometimes when we pray, if there's a template to, to think about, if you think about the roles of who Jesus is, sometimes your praying can be more specific, more worshipful. Um, what does Jesus' name mean? He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And his name encapsulates all that. The name Jesus means salvation is of the Lord. He is the priest. Salvation comes from him. Messiah means anointed one. He is the anointed king who is the word of God. He's the living word. As priest, Jesus stands as the one mediator who by his blood made a sacrifice to grant us access to God. Hebrews 10, 12. As king, Jesus rules the universe as the king of kings. He's the ultimate sovereign. Revelation 19, 16. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. We'll come back on a white horse. Okay. The historical setting of the prophets. We're going to start talking a little bit about the prophets. And what, I, what I've got here, this may be more confusing, but it may be helpful. <laughs> I don't know. We'll pass these out. This is a chart. And let me show you how this chart works because... At this point forward, it gets kind of confusing in the nation of Israel. You've got two kingdoms, and you've got three world powers, and you've got different prophets ruling under different or ministering under different kingdoms. Okay, so I've, this little sheet here is to somehow along the top you've got the timeline. So 950 BC all the way up to 350 BC. Okay, so roughly 600 years. You've got Assyria, which is the first world power. You've got Babylon, which is the second world power. And you've got Persia. So basically, um, and then right up here, you've got the division of Israel and Judah in 931 is when the nation splits into civil war. So let me show you. I've got another handout here. So on this sheet, you've got... The dates of when the different nations fell. The, the fall of Samaria, which is the northern kingdom, the fall of J Jerusalem, and then the decree of Cyrus to allow the Israelites to come back after exile. Judah is the southern kingdom. Israel is the northern kingdom. You've got the different kings listed on there, and you've got the different prophets. So this may be more confusing, but it's the one way to get everything on one sheet. The other handout I gave you has got on one side... And you're going to need to draw. It didn't show up on your. Um, it didn't show up on your on your as good on your handout. But draw a line. You can kind of see that line right there. It was color coded in, in the book. But draw a line like right between Jericho and Jerusalem on there. 
That's the dividing line between the two kingdoms. So no long, after Solomon, no longer is it going to be called Israel. Israel is from now on going to be referred to as the northern kingdom, sometimes referred to as Samaria. So when the Bible in like um, First and Second Kings starts talking about Israel, it's talking about the northern kingdom. When it talks about Judah, it's talking about the southern kingdom. So there's civil war. Now, you guys just look on the map and tell me something. Where's Jerusalem? In the southern kingdom. Where's the, where's the Ark of the Covenant? Where's the temple? In Jerusalem. So here's the question. What in the world is the northern kingdom going to do about worship if they've split off from the southern kingdom? They're going to have to set up an alternate place of worship and it's not going to go well because they've abandoned their brothers in Jerusalem and they're going to have to set up a whole other place. They don't have the Ark of the Covenant. They don't have the temple. They're being totally disobedient. So the nation divides into, on the back, you've got the different kings. You've got the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. Judah lasted longer, okay? Israel got taken over by Assyria, the northern kingdom. They got taken over, but Judah remained longer. Eventually, they got taken over by, by Babylon. And then you have the Persians coming in there during um, like the time towards the end of uh, the end of that. Three major powers. Let's talk about the three major powers. Assyria. In 726 to 722 BC, Hosea, Israel, the northern kingdom's last king, revolted and Sargon II conquered Samaria and led Israel into exile. So the northern kingdom, first, the northern kingdom's the first to go. Okay, so there's civil war. They split into two. The northern kingdom is going to go into exile under Assyria. So you've got Assyria, capital city Nineveh, Savage people, they come, they take over the northern kingdom. Northern kingdom goes into exile. Who's left? The southern kingdom called Judah. Here's a huge question. If you're living in Judah, you've got to ask, why in the world did God allow the northern kingdom to go into exile? And if God allowed them to go into exile, could we be next? And how do we prevent that? What do you think caused them to go into exile ultimately? Idolatry. The big question is, the southern kingdom has seen their northern former brothers go into exile over idolatry. Are they going to learn the lesson and not have the same thing happen to them? And the answer is no. Okay, the second world power, Sennacherib, came against Hezekiah king of Judah. So there was almost a moment there under Hezekiah when it was going to happen to the Judah, to the southern kingdom, but the Lord intervened and prevented Assyria from enjoying victory. The prophets who ministered during this period, during Assyria's reign, which would be Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, and Jonah. So those books are a little bit earlier in in Israel's history, more towards the, 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 the northern kingdom type in Micah and Nahum and Zephaniah. Babylon is the second world power. Okay, the northern kingdom Israel had fallen to the Assyrians, but that did not affect the southern kingdom Judah, and they persisted in their wickedness and idolatry. They just kept going forward with it. Didn't learn the lesson from their, their brothers, the northern kingdom. 
Manasseh was probably Judah's most wicked king. He burned his own children in the fire to the false god. Remember Deuteronomy? King will have the Bible by his bed and he will read the Bible every day and follow that. Manasseh basically throws his own children in the fire to a false god. Pretty bad, right? Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. You probably heard of him. Basically, King Jehoiakim rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and his son Jehoiakim paid the price in exile. Nebuchadnezzar placed Zedekiah on the throne basically kind of as a puppet king, gave Judah one more chance to, to toe the line. Zedekiah revolted. The king of Babylon returned. They defeated Judah. They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They led the people into 70 years of exile. Prophets during this time, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Obadiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. In 539 B.C., Babylon fell to the next nation, Cyrus, the king in Persia. God sovereignly moved in the heart of King Cyrus to let the Israelites return to Jerusalem. Almost 50,000 Jews accepted the offer and headed home. A lot of them stayed. And that's when you get to the, the issue of the rebuilding of the temple. That's the book of Ezra. Under Haggai and Zechariah's influence, they finished it in 516 B.C. Ezra and Nehemiah came back to Judah and rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. Prophets during that time were Joel, Haggai, Zechariah, and the Italian prophet Malachi. Now that's a really, really fast history of Israel. For the sake of time, we're not going to be able to go into um, all of Israel's history. I mean, you're just going to have to go back and read that, but you just need to realize after Solomon, the nation split into two really bad kings, um, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. These other nations took them into exile. Seven years of exile, they came back. They rebuilt the wall. One of the saddest books is Malachi. Malachi is the last book. Malachi is so sad because this, nation, this group of people had been in exile. They came back. The temple was rebuilt. The wall was rebuilt. And they still disobeyed the Lord and didn't do the right sacrifices. And basically, Malachi ends with God saying, okay, there's going to be 400 years of silence until the New Testament. All right. Well, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for being our great God. And Lord, we are are humbled by the story of David, how easily he could have been led astray to, to sin in major ways. But Lord, I thank you that he confessed his sin. Lord Jesus, you cover a multitude of sins. You offer forgiveness and Lord, there's no sin beyond which we can go beyond your grace if we're truly your children. So help us to be repenters. Help us to come and confess our sins before you and trust in you, Jesus, as our our prophet, our priest, and our king. And we do await your return, Lord Jesus, as the coming king. So just pray that our eyes would be fixed upon you this week, that we would love you, we'd worship you, we'd obey you, and that we would always just um, see in you a greater satisfaction than we see in the things in this world and that um, the things in this world would grow strangely dim. They would look meaningless compared to the joy of knowing you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.